Today's passage comes from Psalm 8. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens through the praise of children and infants. You have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds, and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky, and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now, 15 years ago, I was a regular commuter on the suburban rail line from South London into the city centre. It was a half an hour train journey followed by about 20 minutes on the tube. And I tried to use the time well. I used to read my Bible or a good book in the morning. So I decided one time that I was going to read right through the Psalms one a day. But I started at Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 and so on. All was going well until I hit Psalm 8. And then I got stuck. Something about it captivated me. I couldn't get past it. And so I read Psalm 8 over and over again for several weeks. And actually it's something that now, a process I would highly recommend for really getting into a part of the Bible. What was it about Psalm 8? It's simple and yet it's deeply profound. It has a grandeur and a greatness and a dignity to it. Yet it's also passionate and astonished. C.S. Lewis called it a short, exquisite lyric. Now we've been reading the Psalms this summer with my dad who's preached through five, six and seven for us. So when I realised that Psalm 8 was coming next, I could not resist jumping on the bandwagon. Let me just share three brief points with you today to help you in your meditation on this great Psalm. It teaches us vital truths about our worship, our worth and our work. Worship, worth and work. Turn with me please back to the Psalm uh, verse one. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. This psalm shows us how to worship. And this is actually an incredibly important topic. According to the Bible, human beings were made, they were designed to know God, to enjoy God and to worship God. Fundamentally, we are worshippers. In our culture, we define human beings as homo sapiens, and sapiens means knowing. It's a reference to our cognitive processes. We're knowing man. That's true enough, but it's not a sufficient picture because the Bible defines our primary purpose as to worship, to worship God. So before we are homo sapiens, we are homo adorans, worshipping beings. But how do we worship? What does it look like? This psalm shows us it shows us it's a matter of celebrating God, of rehearsing things about him and then relating to him, celebrating the glory, the greatness, the kindness of God to us, rehearsing who he is and what he's done, and then relating all of that to us and our world back to him. Psalm 8 teaches us how to worship. And the first thing we learn is that worship is all about him. The psalm begins and ends with God. The same verse tops and tails it. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Majestic, how excellent, 
how magnificent is your name? And here David addresses God. Uh, that first word, you see the word Lord there is in small capital letters. That actually is translating the Hebrew word Yahweh. Yahweh, the personal name of God that he gave, specially revealed to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 and gave to his people so that they would know who he is. The God who is, I am who I am, I will be who I be. Yahweh, this, this here combines that awe with the greatness of God, yet with a personal intimacy because he is our Lord. It combines a reverence, a respect for God with a great joy in being able to know him. Now, who is this Lord of ours? We find here that he is one of surpassing majesty. He's so majestic that even the highest heaven can't contain him. His glory is above the heavens. God's creation reveals something about him to us, but he turns out to be much bigger than what he has made. And David draws our attention to one aspect of creation in these verses, the moon and the stars. It says that you have set them in place. Now, David had been a shepherd boy guarding his flocks under the eastern sky at night. And I'm pretty sure that he must have lain on his back a few times and tried to count the stars. How many of them are actually visible to the naked eye? Well, estimates vary, but it seems to be something in the order of 5,000. You can see about 5,000 stars from different points on this planet. There's a grandeur about the stars in the night sky, isn't there? Especially when it's untainted by clouds and urban glow. It's vast. There's a mystery to it. You realise you're staring into something that never ends. Now, this is perhaps even more the case with us modern people. We now know lots more about the cosmos than the writer David did. The sun has a diameter of about 864,000 miles and it has a volume over one million times the size of Earth. The sun loses four million tons of its mass every second, but such is its enormous size that it still has enough fuel to last for another five billion years. And yet, you know, that sun is no more than an average-sized star in the suburbs of the Milky Way, which is a gigantic disc-shaped galaxy that stretches some 621,000 million million miles across. This single galaxy contains about 100,000 million stars, the nearest of which... <laughs> Someone's going to call me up on this, but the nearest of which I believe is about 24 million 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 miles away. How many galaxies are there? Because so far we're only talking about one. They estimate that there are thousands of millions of galaxies. So how many stars are there? One writer suggests that if the known stars were to be divided up between all the people in the world, uh, everyone got some stars, we would have about two trillion each. And every year, more stars are being discovered. And it says here in this psalm that all of this is the work of God's fingers. Now, that I don't think is literal. God doesn't really have fingers. It's poetic language to illustrate the care and the artistry of God who shaped the universe like a sculptor. God created the cosmos 
by the word of his power, and he sustains its entire existence from moment to moment. It is the work of his fingers, his artistry. But God, our God, is so much greater than what he has made, just as you are so much greater than anything you make. So when we worship, it's all about him. It's not about us. But, you know, there's more. There is something really amazing in this psalm. This great God whose glory is seen in the heavens, this, this great God whose praise is, one way of translating it, is chanted in the heavens, that praise is also acceptably echoed where? In the creche, in the nursery, in the child's bedroom, in the voices of toddlers. Look at verse 2. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. Now, this verse confused me for a very long time. I can understand how God might get praise from the lips of children and infants, but how does it silence his enemies? I think the essence of being opposed to God, of being an, at enmity with God, is refusing to recognise him, refusing to accept his truth, refusing to accept his rightful claim on our lives and our loyalty, his rule his lordship. But young children, who though they symbolise human weakness, they have a strength greater than God's enemies when they love God and speak his praise. You see, children are the most honest of critics or admirers. They don't fake it. I was walking through Old Motor State recently in South Manchester and a child came out of his gate, looked at me and said, you're ugly. Now, I was wearing a face mask and I wasn't quite sure how to take the comment. But you see, unlike adults, kids will not pretend to like something that they don't like. Babies and toddlers are not very politically skilled or tactful. They do not fake respect. That takes years of training. Consequently, the praise of the very young is actually a powerful thing. It's not faked. It can't be bought. It is real. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem in what's called the triumphal entry, the powerful, the educated, the people in the establishment almost universally despised and opposed him. They were his enemies. But children sang out Hosanna to the son of David. Their adoration and love for Jesus was genuine. It was a very powerful testimony and it exposed his culture despisers. Jesus used this verse to quote to them. You see, worship is powerful. It creates a place of strength. It says here, this, it establishes a stronghold. Now, this stronghold refers to a place of strength. And the remarkable thing is that this verse says, through our praises, the praises of the weak, children and infants, God silences his enemies through this genuine praise. So our praise is important. When we worship God, we are saying, we love you, we trust you, we adore you, we put you first in our lives and in our affections. And that is a powerful answer to all the voices that oppose or despise or criticise God. So let me ask about our worship. Is it like this? Is it full of God or is it somewhat preoccupied with our own experiences and our own problems. Do we worship in private? Do we have 
private times with God where we open his word and pray to him, perhaps even sing quietly. Do we have, if you're part of a family, do you have family devotions? Do you open God's word together and worship him? And in our church community, the, the capacities we have to meet, are we growing together as worshippers of God like this, making much of him, singing his praises? Are we captivated by his greatness and his glory and his kindness to us, humbled by it and thrilled? Are we seeing God and learning more about him to the extent that it draws praise out of us? Because that will be a place of strength. First point, it teaches us about our worship. Now, secondly, it teaches us about our worth, our worth, our value. Reddit Andrews is an African-American pastor and author. And he writes about wrestling with spiritual questions when he was even a very young child. One time he says he got a map of the solar system from McDonald's and he taped it by his bed on the wall, by his pillow. And he says this, I'd sometimes spend moments that felt like hours gazing at it, impressed by the vastness of space. This would give rise to troubling thoughts. How could a God so great and powerful as to make all that exists in outer space possibly know me? Is it conceivable that he can really hear my prayers? Even if it were possible, would he even care? To my young mind, these thoughts were deep and unsettling. Indeed they were. Staring into the vastness of space naturally leads to a sense of being absolutely insignificant. Perhaps you felt this. You're looking into the stars and space and you realise, I'm just a speck in a vast universe and it feels lonely and impersonal. I'm a speck living on a speck that hardly anyone can see. And at the end of the day, you find yourself wondering, do I really matter? Does anybody out there care? Will I be known and remembered? Now, one writer puts it like this. In contrast to God, the heavens are tiny, pushed and prodded into shape by the divine fingers. But in contrast to the heavens, which seems so vast in the human perception, it is mankind that is tiny. Now, with David, we then ask the question of verse four. Have a look at that. What is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them. And surely the answer is in view of how big God is and how big the universe is, then what are we? We're absolutely nothing. Yet the wonder of the Bible is that the Lord is both mindful and caring about us, about you. God is mindful of humankind. That word can also be translated, he remembers us. He remembers us and in the Bible, when God is remembering, it's not because he's forgotten. It doesn't mean he's forgotten. It implies his movement towards his people. He's concerned for us. He draws near. He focuses his attention on us. And also God cares for us. And this means he attends to us and to our needs. Can you get your head around this? We fill the mind of God. Now, many of us struggle with low self-esteem. Perhaps you do. And our culture has been telling us for the last few decades that the solution 
to low self-esteem is to see yourself as really important, that you really need high self-esteem. Give yourself high self-esteem and your other problems might well go away. But here we see the biblical way is not that. Nor is it about low self-esteem. The greatest affirmation of your worth comes when you put God at the centre of your life and your worship. And then when he is in his rightful place and you are in your rightful place, do you find that you receive the truest and most important validation of your worth? In the eyes of the most important person of the, in the universe, you are known and loved because of Jesus. Dear friend, tiny though you may be in this vast universe, you do matter because you matter to God, our Heavenly Father. He knows every hair on your head. He knows you're going out and you're lying down. He knows how many days you're going to live, says they were written in his book before they came to be. You may be lonely, but you are never alone. Whatever your circumstance now, let me encourage you to reach out to him. He is not far from any one of us. And remember, in your worship, the worth that God gives you. Worship and worth. Thirdly, the psalm teaches us about our work. Our work. There's only one creature in the universe, one creature in the world, that asks that question of verse 4, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? And verse 5 to 8 gives us an answer to the question about how God has made us. Here it is again. You've made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honour. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. The stunning thing that the Bible teaches us, not only does God think about us, but God has crowned us. He's crowned us with glory and honour. We're kings and queens under him, the lords of all creation. Notice in verse 5, the context suggests it's prim primarily talking about our position. We've been appointed to rule the world as God's agents. This is our role. It's, you might say, as a race, it's our job description is to govern the world. The old language is to exercise dominion also to take, take care of it and steward it. And in that sense, we are beneath God in the pecking order, a little lower than, the, than God or the angels, but we are above the rest of the created order, the animals and the world itself. God is the ultimate king, but he has delegated his authority to human beings. And so we are to exercise careful dominion over the created order by developing it, by looking after it, by making the most of all the amazing resources that God has put within it, all within care. Human beings, it says here, are crowned with glory and honour. And this is amazing because these words are usually only used about God himself. They suggest something of his divine majesty reflected by us. Glory, his dignity, honour, his splendour. And God here, it says, has crowned us with them. He's given some element of his attributes to us. He's conferred royal status on his subjects. Thirdly, it says God made them rulers and put everything under their feet. Astonishing. We are God's appointed governors over creation to maintain good order, to care for the world, to develop its resources. We're rulers. God has 
put a crown on our head and have, you might say, given us a territory and subjects, the creatures who were all paraded before us at the end of the psalm in a, in a big parade. Now, how do we apply truths like these? Surely one conclusion we must draw is that every single human being has immense value. The most apparently worthless human life is invested with value by the creator and has regal potential. This is where the Jewish and the Christian traditions develop the idea of sanctity of life. A second outcome of this thinking is that the world, the universe, is to be investigated and studied and known and developed. And that led to the creation of science. It was a worldview that came from the Bible which actually nourished, it was like the soil which gave birth to modern science. So all the advantages that we have enjoyed through the development of medicine and travel, uh, air travel and transport through technology, or even the, the means that you have to watch this here today, all these things came about because of the development of science which had its roots in this view of the world. So science, technology, these things are a partial fulfillment of the job that God gave us to rule the world. Another aspect of this teaching though that has, must go along with that is about our responsibility. We are caretakers, stewards of God's world and therefore we should take really good care of it. Now Christians have often been at the forefront of protecting and championing human rights. We should also be concerned for other creatures and for the environment. You know it is easy for us to let our faith become quite introspective and a bit pious and lose sight of the wider creation we are called to serve and govern. Final implication, your work matters to God because he gave it to you. Your work, whatever you do, and when I say work I mean every form of good and useful endeavour, whether it is bringing up children or tending a garden or caring for the sick or teaching the young, or managing finances, or researching cancer. Whether your work is cleaning, serving in a shop, recruiting or business, whether it's in IT or HR, whether you're in the public sector, the commercial world or the third sector, whether you run a home, your work, your meaningful activity is significant. The Lord God has called you to exercise dominion in his world through the gifts and abilities that he gave you. And honest work done well participates in ruling the world and caring for it. Every good endeavour glorifies God. Do you realise that your work is part of your worship? So let me ask you, do you think of your endeavour like this? Do you bring your daily work before God in prayer? However tedious and boring and repetitive it may be, it brings him glory if it's done well. Are we careful enough about the planet? Are we careful enough about human beings made in God's image? Living with care for the land, the sea, the air and all who live there and doing justice for every human, this brings God glory. And yet, let's be real, shall we? We have failed dismally to live up to the potential indicated in this great psalm. We have abused and polluted the world that we were put in charge of. 
We've stolen its resources and used our power to serve ourselves and to neglect others. So as the human race, we're really not doing very well. But you know, there is hope for us. Because when the New Testament reaches back and quotes Psalm 8, it connects it to the Lord Jesus. And this is where I want to finish. This is from Hebrews chapter 2. He quotes, You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honour and put everything under their feet. And Hebrews reflects, In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present we don't see everything subject to them. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honour because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. God sent his own son into the world to rescue us from our failure and our sins and their consequences and to fulfil Psalm 8 as we have not. Jesus was the one true worshipper. Jesus was the one ultimately worthy person. Jesus was the one who did the work that he was given, as we have not. Jesus was put in our position, crowned with glory and honour, and God has now put everything under his feet. We don't yet see everything put fully under Jesus' feet, do we? But that day is coming. But we do, with the eyes of faith, behold Jesus now. So let us fix our thoughts on him. And as we do, let's conclude where David does in this psalm, in praise for the majestic name of God, now invested this praise with so much more that we've spent this time in the psalm together. And let's be thankful for all that he has made us to be and all that he's done for us. Let's pray. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens, and yet you love the praise of children and infants. What are we that you are mindful of us, and yet you care for us? Father, we want to thank you today for what you reveal in this psalm about yourself and about us, and about what we were made for, and about what we're supposed to be doing. And we ask that you would remake us and make us true worshippers, make us people who understand our worth from your scriptures, not from the world around, and make us value and cherish and do our work to the best of our ability. And we ask all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.